0: Hello, humans. Hello, humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug on Ellie DuBordeaux Radio. How are you? How are you? It's good to be back. Good to be talking to you. Um, I'm happy to be here. However, um, we're just going to get into it right away. As you know, this is the 20th Anniversary of 9 11. I suppose before I get into that, I should tell you we've got a big interview with Michael Rexford from uh, Light Hope Life, a nonprofit. He'll be the big interview. And then in the C block, I'm going to talk a little bit about my work. But right now, in this A block, I'm going to dispense with talking about historical or contemporary idealists. And I am going to talk about the 20th anniversary of 9 11. For most of you, um, that was um, a day. A memory marker, the kind of day where you no doubt remember where you were, what you were doing when you heard about the planes um, going into the towers and the Pentagon and Flight 93A ending up in a field in Pennsylvania. Um, If you've read my memoir, Getting to Ellen, and I'm going to read an excerpt from it in a bit, you will know the relationship of 9-11 to how... Ellie Krug, me, how I arrived in the world. There is a very direct correlate, very direct cause and effect. As I have shared before, when I presented as a man, I lived a life that most people could only ever dream of. I was in love with and married the love of my life, my soulmate, Lydia. We had two beautiful daughters. They were 9 11, they were 11 and 9 years old. I hadn't thought about that, the way that worked. Um, we lived in a house in the best neighborhood in Cedar Rapids, and I had a very, very lucrative law practice that gave my family great financial security. Yet, by September of 2001, I had been waging a hidden war with myself for three decades. I'd had, by then, by September of 2001... There were these great, horrible gut tugs and pulls that kept showing up, telling me that I wasn't a heterosexual man. Those pulls and tugs were telling me that I had to go live my life as the true me, a woman who was attracted to men. (laughs) However, I knew that if the true me ever came out, I knew that I would lose everything that I just listed for you. And so what I was doing as of September of 2001 was I was day in and day out, hourly, suppressing my true identity. Um, and I, I did that not by myself. I went and, and started getting therapy back in the early 90s to help keep the lid on everything. Um, and and, and, and I, I did not want – to hurt everyone in my life, and I did not want to upend my life. I tried, I was working very hard to stay a man, and one of the ways I suppressed was to remind myself of how much I love my family. Sometimes that meant spending special time with my kids. So as it turned out, on the weekend before 9-11, you may recall that 9-11 was a Tuesday, it happened on a Tuesday. On the weekend before, on the Friday of that weekend, I drove into Chicago with my youngest daughter, Lily. Um, she was nine at the time, and the plan was to go see the Cubs play. It was our very first time of going. She wanted to go see a professional baseball game. It was the very first time we'd ever done that. Um, and we went into Chicago on a Friday night, as I said, and you know, and stayed at the Drake Hotel, nice hotel. Went unpacked and went to the Cheesecake Factory, which was kind of a tradition when we went into Chicago because the family had been to Chicago before had this wonderful meal at the Cheesecake Factory, and then we w- walked along the Magnificent Mile. The next day, Lily and I got up early and took an elevator to the top of the John Hancock Tower. Um, now, you may re- you may know the John Hancock Tower in downtown Chicago is a 100 stories tall. It was a glorious, cloudless September morning, and Lily and I looked out at the world from the observatory at the John Hancock, and I reminded myself at that very moment that that was the reward for me, the reward for me for staying the course, for staying as a man. Look at this wonderful moment you're having with your daughter. It's a glorious day. You're going to go see the Cubs. Oh, my God, this is all because you've done the hard work of staying as a man. We went to the Cubs game and had a great time. And it was more reinforcement that I could never, ever possibly love myself more than my family. Three days later, On the exact same kind of a beautiful day that Lily and I had been in Chicago, standing in the observatory at John Hancock Tower, three days later, 9-11 happened. I don't have enough time to talk about how that day unfolded for me. Suffice to say that it was gut-wrenching for me, as I am sure it was for you. What I can share is that at some point I saw the images of people jumping from the towers, including an image of two people holding hands as they jumped. When I saw those images, I was instantly taken back to the Hancock Tower with Lily. And my mind raced to imagining that she and I were caught at the top of the tower and that we knew that we were going to die. And my God, could I do that? Could I grab Lily's hand and jump? That night, along with much of America, I was at church with Lydia and the two girls. We sat in the second pew from the, uh, in, from the altar in the packed St. Matthew's Catholic Church. And now I'm going to read from my excerpt, an excerpt from my book about what happened in the church that night. This is on page 120 in a chapter titled Seat 13A. Somewhere around the third refrain of what was going on after the homily, my gut hijacked my brain and heart. I stopped listening and again imagined. This time, I was on Flight 11, one of the two planes that originated in Boston. It was easy to fall into. I had taken several early morning cross-country flights when I lived in Boston. I pictured myself in seat 13A, a window seat. I heard the mechanical rrrr of of wing flaps as they took hold against the city sky. The terrorist pilot adjusting altitude. I pressed against the seat as the jet's engines revved. There were a thousand office buildings now, their shadow blanking smaller structures. In the distance I could see the two towers, the tallest of the tall, obvious targets. In my mind's eye, I looked down at Manhattan streets and spied ant people, and city bus specs, knowing I was about to die. My heart tried to pull me back from this imagining. Please stop it. I beg you. I couldn't. My gut was at the controls. I huddled in seat 13A, crazy with fear, thinking last thoughts and flashing heartache-wrapped memories. I thought of Lydia for sure. There was Emily and Lily, too, my daughters. Mark and Jackie popped into my head, my brother and sisters. And Thap, my best friend. Yes, of course, dear Thap. Then, completely out of left field, there it was, my final, just before you die thought. You coward. You effing coward. You're going to die without ever getting to be yourself. Your true self. Coward. G.D. Right. Kneeling now. A mechanical Catholic movement. My stomach churned. I couldn't get off that plane. I couldn't avoid being murdered. American Airlines aluminum blasted into New York City steel. A flash of bright light and a zillion degree heat. Blackness. Last chance lost. I turned to see Lydia wrapped around Emily and Lily. You're a coward. I thought of my love for the girls of Knollwood. How could I ever put myself above you? No, never. I tried to focus on Father Christopher. He held the Eucharist aloft. He called on us to believe that it was the body of Christ. My faith in that, as well as in anything else intangible, had vanished long ago. I'll be honest, the only body I thought of at that moment was my body, as it vaporized along with everything else on Flight 11. You're a coward. My terminal thinking, call it final enlightenment, maybe, continued. Unless you do something radical, you're going to miss your only chance to live as you. For once, love yourself. Stop being afraid. Otherwise, you really will die. A hundred thousand times before 9-11, I had told myself, you need your own life. I hadn't ever linked the mantra to the idea that I might die without ever getting to be me. The sacrifice of 3,000 innocents instantly taught me one crucial thing. Unless I did something to change my life, I'd never be me. It didn't matter that I barely knew who or what me was. Whoever it was needed to crawl into the light. She had been in the shadows long enough. It was that night, 9-11, at St. Matthew's Catholic Church where I decided that I was done suppressing my true identity. It was right there in that Mass where I turned to my wife and She had been crying and I had been crying, but now I was crying different tears because at that moment I started crying for her and my daughters because I knew that I was going to hurt them. My friends, we all have moments of truth, moments in time, events that happen which shape or scar us forever. 9-11 did that to 3,000 people and their families. Please, we must remember them today. And 9-11 did that to me, too. But for 9-11, you would not be hearing my voice right now. You would not. I don't believe that I would be alive. I don't think I would have been able to make it. Be safe today, my friends, and take a moment to think of those we lost please also say a prayer for our country because we need it badly. Okay, when we come back, I'll be doing the big interview with Michael Rexford. Thank you for letting me talk to you about this. Bye. Bye. Back, LE 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Now, for the big interview, I have Michael Rexford on the line. Uh, Long time listeners may recall Michael's name because he was on the show back in November of 2019, just a couple of months before we started to dive into the pandemic. And he was on at that time to talk about his uh, nonprofit and foundation, Light Hope Life. We're going to bring him. We're bringing him back today to talk about it because Michael uh, is both. He is. He is both a lawyer. Um, he is a philanthropist. He is a foundation, nonprofit creator, and most importantly, for purposes of this show, he is an idealist. Michael, welcome back to Le Two Radio. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you for having me back. It's an honor and a joy to be with you.
0: Oh, Michael, that's just so great. And you're, you're out in Los Angeles. Um, I am. You know, and, uh, and, 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 and in that capacity of you being out in Los Angeles, you've gotten a take on the world and, you know, kind of, you know, around the entertainment world and some other things. Can you remind the audience what Light Hope Life is? is about, okay? And talk sure. about some of the challenges you've had with the foundation, the nonprofit since the pandemic set in. And then and then we're going to talk about the mission, which is around trauma, around suicide prevention and things like that and and then we've got some, you know, we've got some very current trauma going on and we want to talk about that. So go ahead, Michael.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I started the foundation in the spring of 2016 uh, after I had recognized that, um, really f- immediately following the suicide of Robin Williams in August of 2014 and, and a lot of the dialogue that is happening out in the world, um, things such as, you know, what did he have to be depressed about type thing. Um, which I read someone online responding to by saying that's like asking what there is to have heart disease about, um, which I thought really highlighted the the disconnect that, that um, exists right. in our world. Uh, that mental illness and, you know, suicidal ideation does not follow rational linear kind of lines and, 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 because I had a history as a volunteer suicide prevention hotline counselor, I had training and experience talking to people who were in crisis, people who were suicidal, and recognized it as an opportunity for me to create a, an organization that primarily teaches people how to talk to someone in crisis, because we in American society and probably the greater world, uh, are generally trained and, and taught as we grow up not to be nosy, not to be intrusive, and to give people their space. And what that means then is that when we in the everyday walking around world experience mental health struggles, challenges of whatever kind, um, we then don't know how to talk about it. Right. And, and isolation is one of the worst things that someone who's struggling or in crisis can experience.
0: So I mean, the real you know and this is right on you you uh, you and I we should let the audience know know each other because you went through my gray area thinking training, I came out to uh, the law firm you were at at the time and did that training, and That's right. you know and that training is about being brave, taking risks, and reaching out to people who are vulnerable or, or are suffering and um and so we have that in common in terms of that approach. Tell me um well, let's finish up the thread about the nonprofit. How is it done in the pandemic? And what you know, how has the pandemic shaped the work that you're trying to do around trauma around suicide prevention? I mean, we've got to acknowledge we've lost. More than 650,000 people to the virus. Obviously, that has rippling effects to family members and friends, you know, in the millions. Okay. And then, of course, we have Mm -hmm. people who, who have long COVID. Okay. Because now Mm -hmm. they're suffering, you know, and we have a country generally as a whole where we are like, you know, we, we, we had the summer. We thought that, okay, we got past it. You know, we, you know, it was tarred boy, it was a hard 14 months, but we did it, and now we're just heading back into it. Taking another lap.
1: Yeah. Well, and and um, the, the, the breakthrough phenomenon of the virus really uh, creates additional concerns and stresses about what this then means, because we've gotten, the, you know, those of us who have gotten vaccinated, which hopefully is a growing group, is, is that that's not the cure-all that doesn't that doesn't necessarily keep us shielded uh and that that itself um causes additional um stress uh, of its own kind but in answer to your question you know during while one of the missions of the foundation has been to raise critically needed funds for those organizations out there that are that are doing the important work whether it's research outreach education uh, and so forth um i put that aspect of the foundation on hold once the pandemic arrived in light of the economic hardships that so many experienced um during the pandemic i participated in virtual panel discussions and and given virtual presentations on mental health um geared both toward the legal profession uh which of course i'm in and and toward the the general population um and, uh, you know, look, I've, I've always been a, a dreamer, rather in line with your, your idealism theme and, and, you know, the central feature of, of everything that you're about. Um, and during the past year and a half, I've, I've given quite a, a lot of thought to how my foundation could uh, evolve. And I'm currently considering how to put together some initiatives to target some of the sectors of our society that are disproportionately highly affected by mental illness and suicide, such as first responders, members of the military and military veterans, uh, lawyers, farmers, and so forth, because it seemed to me that programs that are specifically tailored to those sectors are more likely to have a helpful impact than a generally applicable effort toward increasing awareness in society. Uh, And as so many have done so much for society's benefit, I feel driven to find a way to ease at least some of their burden and feel that I'm positioned to do so. And as you can imagine, while a goal like that is easy to capture in a neat and tidy soundbite, many details that need to be carefully worked out, um, which of course is, is a time-consuming process.
0: Right, and that's in in addition to you having like a day job as a lawyer, which is a sixty to seventy <laughs> hour a week uh, profession, right? So exactly, you know. And uh, we're going to have to take a break here in a second. And but mm-hmm. when we come back, Michael, I wanna I wanna talk about, you know, the cumulative effects of trauma, and you know, we you started out by talking about how we're afraid, you know, to reach out to people. You know, when they are um, suffering and mm-hmm. let's talk about give people some, you know, some of the listeners some tools on how they can reach out. You know, we have that, you know, we have today 9-11 being a day, of course, where there is cumulative trauma um, mm-hmm. that just carries with us. But when we come back, we got to take our break right now, but let's come back and talk about that. Okay. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, listeners, we've been speaking with Michael Rexford, uh, the founder of Light Hope Life, um, a nonprofit and foundation geared around suicide prevention, education around trauma. Uh, when we come back from the break, we'll continue our interview with Michael. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. We'll be back in a sec. Thanks. And we're back, LD two radio a lovely AM nine fifty. Uh, we're you know, we're in the middle of the big interview with Michael Rexford, who is a, a lawyer and a nonprofit founder and creator. base He's based in Los Angeles, and his nonprofit and foundation is named Light Hope Life. Michael, before we took our break, um, we were talking about you know trauma. You know, a, a lot of people are stressed out. A lot of people are traumatized by what's going on with the pandemic. And now we're heading in, you know, again, you know, and and I'll tell you in Los Angeles, um, obviously, everybody's affected. But you got good weather, you know, all year round (laughs) out here. You know, everybody in Minnesota, we're like looking at our watches because we've got about uh, maybe 45 more days of sitting out on patios. And then it's five months of, you know, having to be inside. So those are, you know, those are big factors out here for that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what, you know, um, in, you know, in your experience, I mean, you've gotten trained as, uh, you know, uh, helping with suicide prevention and trauma, a trauma specialist and, and things like that. What are the tools if you know someone is suffering? Okay. Or you suspect it, maybe you don't know for sure. What kinds of tools do you know, to have for people suggestions for people on how they can reach out to people who are suffering and particularly like on today, you know, 9-11, it's a somber day but I'm absolutely positive it's a day that's going to trigger a number of people. It's certainly triggering me to a certain degree.
1: Well, this is – yeah, I was uh, – earlier this week I commented to a friend that our world seems really overrun with negativity, challenges, risk, illness, death, animosity, hostility, violence, yep. and other bad behavior and all sorts of other negative things. And, and um, add 20th anniversary of such a a just a, a, a ghastly um, series of events. Um, that, that, that changed our world and changed our lives. Um, it's, it's up to each of us to recognize ongoing opportunities to reach out to others. No agenda, which is really um, um, something that I think we, um, is kind of a, a loaded um, phrase at this moment, to connect, ask meaningful questions about what others have been experiencing, what these times mean to them, expectation as to what the answer is going to be and, and not hearing answers through any particular filter of what we need it to be uh, ask people what if anything they've been doing for themselves um, and and it's very common that just having an opportunity to speak with someone and express, our concerns, our challenges, that the, the all the difficulties that that we've been going through itself has a cathartic, therapeutic um, function, right. and um, it's 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 not uncommon for people to resist reaching out to others to get a sense of. Others' emotional welfare, um, not only due to discomfort about what what should be said, but also because of the concern that comes with the the, the question that comes to uh, many people's mind, which is if I if I reach out to so and so and he's having a, a crisis, am, am I then responsible for him and his well-being? Uh, and not only that, but I, I don't know what to say. Uh, right. And while those those kinds of concerns and concerns are perfectly understandable. Um, they are the active barriers that, that that prevent us from helping each other. So um, I, I think really kind of measuring the, the circumstance by, by the yardstick of what, what would I want someone to ask me? What would I be comfortable talking about? And using that almost as a guide, really kind of turning the tables. Um kind of uh, in concept to to get a sense of what what you might want to share and then asking you know using that as as the basis to ask someone what they're experiencing
0: well, well um, Michael, give me the words i mean so let's let's do a little bit of a role play at least you know you think Ellie is suffering, okay um, sure. well you know give me the first sentence, the first words that you would say to help. You know, break the the barrier and um, start a conversation, and and uh, allow for empathy and compassion to flow.
1: Absolutely. Well, it could be something just as simple as, "Hey, Ellie, it's been a little while since we were last in touch. Um, I have it has been a mind bending time with politics and illness and and economic challenges and and." It's been coming at me from all sides. How has it been for you? Hmm. The key to at, to talking to people and getting them to open up is really asking open-ended questions, which are questions that are intended to elicit a substantive answer rather than a yes-no answer. Get, get people talking. People rather want to se- talk.
0: Rather than saying, are you okay? Right.
1: Or saying, you're not thinking about hurting yourself, are you? Which gives the, the, the other person a sense of the answer that you want to hear.
0: Ah, so don't say that. Okay, okay. And, yeah. and so what if, what if, though, you have the sense that the person really is hurting, but they like, oh, you know, yeah, everything's okay. I'm all right. You know, what, I mean, do you bump and run then? Or, you know, do you stick around, maybe have a change the topic, but then double back? Uh, again yeah how well, they're it's, doing it
1: one of the it's a great question one of the one of the the factors that that makes this whole area so challenging is that crises and day-to-day life challenges frequently take believable amount of energy right uh, and 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 you have to almost kind of you, you just have to go there and, and, and nudge a little, not, not saying be intrusive. People have a right to privacy, of course, but frequently when people are struggling, they want to talk. And, but people also have a, um, kind of a, an, an instinctive um, reaction of, uh, you have things going on, and, and that itself, um, you can kind of set, push that aside, set that aside and say, no, it's a, I'm, I'm really interested to know. Uh, uh-huh. And it shows a genuine caring and when there is a genuine caring and and a perceived safe space mm. in which to share whatever it is that's been burdening you, um, that's when a lot of a lot of information can 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 be expressed. and, well, and uh, once yep. you have that, you can take that where it goes.
0: Well, I'm, I love the phrase. I'm interested to know. You know, trust me, yeah. I'm really interested to know.
1: Yeah, I love that phrase.
0: You know, Michael, my listeners will remember this. My longtime listeners will remember that one of my tactics, there's quotation marks around that phrase because my heart is always compassionate, um, is to write letters or notes to people. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm a huge believer that if you receive, and not like emails or text, you know, like pen to paper, is that mm-hmm. when you receive that, it's special because we don't usually get those anymore. And, and there's something that you can hold on to and you can keep coming back to them. And so if you write the words down even, I'm, I'm asking for your opinion, you know, I'm interested in hearing how you're doing. If you write those words down, don't you think that they have even a more profound effect?
1: Well, it shows a genuine effort. It's not, you know, we live in a, in a digital world and a digital society. Yep. And yep. so taking that extra personal step, I mean, when I changed firms earlier this year, you very kindly sent me a congratulatory note, um, which was very touching and and, and a, a, a appreciated. Um, so I, I I completely share your 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 view of that. Um, but you know it may be potentially a combination of that type of personal touch together with uh, I let let's I'd like to schedule a time to talk with you at at, at your convenience. And again. Sometimes negative thinking uh, or, or, you know, various types of of emotional challenge um, create a a negative lens through which the world is viewed. Uh, It frequently requires the the person who's trying to help to do more of the effort. And if you don't get a response to, to that, just putting a call in at some point. Um, and you know, again, recognizing that that mental health challenges frequently sap people of of energy. But I've I've always been a big believer in the in the idea of a a candle losing nothing by lighting another candle.
0: <laughs> oh, I love that. So, Michael, we've got just a couple of minutes left. Um, you know, uh, talk to us about how you became so idealistic. I know that. You know, um, as you talked about when we had you on uh, nearly two years ago, you had a very serious health crisis that made you think about dying um, back in the 90s. Um, Talk about how that may have shaped you and what else shaped you to do. I mean, listen, you're in L.A., you're in a big law firm, you can make a lot of money, you know, and you could just do that, buy yourself toys, have a nice lifestyle all of that stuff and enjoy the trappings of what comes with a very successful career. But instead you've decided not to do that. I mean, I'm sure you're doing fine, but you you you're also spending a whole lot of time and you know and and and, and, and energy and emotional energy to do this. Why? Why are you so idealistic?
1: I have Well, my idealism really stems from a combination of my late beloved mother's lifelong showing of resilience and hope, strength, and and drive to help others while experiencing and struggling with the the countless incredibly difficult physical and emotional effects of post-polio syndrome, which she contracted as a toddler in the mid-40s. Um, she was uh, 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 walked for March of Dimes and was just always helping others. Uh, and I I watched her do that throughout her life. Uh, and of course, my, my having come so close to death during my long illness in the mid to late 90s. Um, those things put a lot into perspective for me. Um, which naturally formed a, a rather idealistic view of life, and, and in addition, I mean, I do my mental mental health and, and suicide prevention work, but I've taught uh, first aid and CPR on a volunteer basis at Red Cross. I've donated. I'm, I'm one pint shy of 14 gallon donor of uh, at, at American Red Cross. Holy cow! Um, yeah, ready that's, to that, that's way to a go! Way to go! And uh, you know what? There's it, I, I it it just. The emotional boost that helping others brings me makes it a a win-win all around, (laughs) Uh, and we we don't have nearly enough of that uh, happening in the world.
0: Well, we don't have nearly enough Michael Rexford's in the world, just saying. (laughs) Michael, we've got to go, but I just really want to thank you so very much for being on my show again. I wish you the best with uh, Light Hope Life, um, and I wish you the best as you go forward. You are a wonderful role model for our profession, legal profession, You know, and and, and just as you go out and, and talk about what you do and things, it inspires people and tells them it's okay to do this. So thanks. Thanks for all that you do I'm, in the world.
1: I'm grateful for this uh, opportunity. Uh, thank you.
0: Okay. All right. Well, listeners, we've been speaking with Michael Rexford, an attorney and the founder of Light Hope Life out in Los Angeles. Um, if you want to learn more, just Google Light Hope Life and you'll be able to find out about the organization. If uh, you like me, visit my website at elliekrug.com. I'll be back in a second for the C-Block. Thanks. Thanks. And we're back. LE 2.0 Radio, uh, Michael Rexford. It's always good to talk to Michael and it's always inspiring, of course, when we come along and we meet idealists that are trying to do the work and in addition to the day job and all of that. So, okay. Well, listen, my C-block here... Um, uh, you know, in the A block, I read from my book. Um, a couple of things. It, the book is available. I mean, Amazon Kindle or Nook. It's the title is Getting to Ellen: A Memoir About Love, Honesty, and Gender Change. All you have to do is just Google Ellie Krug's book, and it'll come up. But also available, at, you know, at Majors and Quinn in Uptown. Your local bookstore could possibly uh, could certainly order the book. And so, I urge you to support local bookstores as well if you have an interest. And by the way, if your book club reads my book. I will come to the book club, um, probably virtually, but maybe in person, depending, um, at no charge. Okay. I just, I'm always thankful that people read my book. Last night, it was a book club out in Oregon, believe it or not, that I spoke to. That didn't start till nine o'clock at night. Oh my goodness. Um, but it was fine. It was, you know, a dozen people and it was just a delightful conversation with, it was all women and they were, but they were just really, very caring and considerate, and some of the things they said about my book were very humbling. Okay, um, I want to talk with you. So, just you know, nine eleven gave you Ellie Krug. Okay, gave me Ellie Krug, and and um, and Ellie Krug is an idealist. I mean, I couldn't be idealistic when I presented as a man. It was just, I mean, I was suppressing my identity as a woman, and, you know, I was just, I mean, this idealism is part of who I am as, as a woman, as Ellie Krug, and, and so everything got suppressed, but now I get to be me, I get to be this idealist, and as you know, I go out and I speak <clears throat> across the country, um, lately, just simply online, but I had, this week, my my very first live training, very, very first live training since March 13th, Excuse me, March twelfth of twenty twenty, very first live training. It was um, to a small city in the metro uh, to their leadership team. You know, the city manager, you know, the fire chief, the police chief. We had other people there. And Going into it, and I'm not going to name the city um, out of confidentiality concerns, but um, uh, but going into it, I had you know, I have the, the HR person and I. Um, had been communicating about things getting set up and all that. And she had let me know that that one of the, one of the leaders on her team was not happy about coming to the training and that that leader, you know, had said, you know, essentially didn't want to come, but the training was mandatory. So people had to go. And so this leader, you know, this person, department head, let's just say that, um, had to go, but I knew who it was. And, um, and uh, during the training, you know, I, I engaged that person a little bit. I, you know, we went into the training and I said, you know, some of you may not be happy about being here, you know, but I'm not here to shame anybody. I'm not here to guilt anybody. That's not what this is about. We're all on a journey together. And then I said, by the way, if you have children or grandchildren, this is important to them, you know, because the things we're going to talk about is what I mean. They're being taught this in, in you know middle school, the concepts that I'm going to share with you. And then we did the training, okay? And and as it turned out, this department head engaged. I mean, he shared uh, some things um, during the training about himself, um, because we have an opportunity during gray area thinking for people to talk about identities that they have. Um, you know, because we all have these various identities, we group and label ourselves just like we group and label other people. And he shared. He shared some things that you know were reflected some vulnerability on his part, you know. And as I'm doing the training, I'm watching. You know, I'm like trying to see how this guy's doing. He's smiling and all that. Well, my uh, contact um, at the city, the HR person, sent me an email um, uh, yesterday, and uh, because I I reached out and I said, you know, here's here's the here's the invoice, okay, from my work. And by the way, how did you know? How did people like it? And have you heard anything? And she came back and and told me that, you know, this uh, person had actually um, had actually said uh, he had he'd come to her after the training and said he liked it. It wasn't at all what he had expected, and so he found it a value. And I've got to tell you, for me, the idealist, the person trying to change the world, the person trying to grab minds that might be hesitant or reluctant or you know, opposing to the concepts about how we need to have compassion for each other. For me to hear or read that, it just made my day. It did. Because it's about moving the needle. It's about rippling to humans. Because if I ripple to someone, there's a chance that they're going to ripple to someone else. And so forth and so on. That's the idealist in me who believes all of that is possible. And, you know, I, I do need Michael, when we did the interview, he talked about how there's so much negativity in all of that. There is. But I continue to subscribe to the theory that 98% of all people have good empathetic hearts. 2% total sociopaths. I know. You've heard me say this now probably a dozen times in the last year and a half or so. Um, But I do, I believe that the vast, vast, vast majority of humans are good. It's just that many are afraid. And when fear dictates our behavior, we do things that we otherwise ordinarily would not do. So, um, you know, um, I believe that we can get past what divides us. It's just that it's going to take us facing our fears, taking risks and going forward and even though it's bumpy and uncomfortable all of that stuff sometimes very often there's a payoff on the other end like hey that wasn't nearly as bad as I expected it to be and I think I might have learned something you know I don't think we can ask of anything more than that of humans so That's my success story for the week. Um, Stay tuned. I'm trying my best to push the envelope, move the needle. I am. I am trying my best. And again, without 9-11, that horrible, horrible day, I wouldn't be here doing that work. So some things do ripple in a positive way. All right, everyone. Well, listen, I hope that you have enjoyed this show. I hope that I did not depress you too much with um, the first segment of the show. But, you know, it is a somber day. I hope that you go forward today and that today is a good day for you. And in the week between now and when we talk next, go out and try and make the world a better place. A big thanks to my producer, Patrick, who is doing a great job having to do some little math today. Um, and a big thanks to all of you for tuning in every week. Tell others about this show, please. Um, I'd love for more and more people to hear about this work and about the guests that we bring on. And go out and make it a good week. Take care and be well. Bye, my friends.